Okay, so my introduction to the Ultimate Hunter competition was at Cameo through you, and we had the opportunity to run through the course on our own, mess with it, play with it, compare it, and then run it as uh, as instructed. And so I, I think that was kind of a unique unique way to get introduced to it because um, we had a lot of time to play on it. And my takeaway was that it was fun. I think people that know me and listen to this podcast know that, you know, I, I like to cut through bullshit and I like to try every style of shooting with a, with a rifle that I can um, from field competitions to specific, you know, uh, kind of laser focused, laser focused styles, but they have to be fun to, to maintain your interest. And when I walked away from the ultimate hunter course, my biggest takeaway was that it was super fun. It was efficient. So, you know, I, I understand that if, if, if there were a hundred people, there could be staging area weights, but being able to walk through the course, it was laid out in a way that was, that was intuitive and effective. There was no extra transit space. Um, so you could flow through the stages and there was really no uh, confusion about what you were going to do. You went to the staging area, you walked forward to, to a gate where your time started. You walked to colored markers that indicate your targets. Most of those, if you got behind them, you could see all the targets by eye. They were colored coordinated to the markers. And then a very clear shooting area that you had to be in and the understanding that it's hit to move and that there's three targets. There's a close range target, a middle range target, and a far target. Now, I haven't reviewed the actual numbers. Can you guys clarify the range brackets of close, middle, far? Yeah, so close is red, and it's always between 100 and 200 yards. Uh, and then intermediate is white. It's always between 201 and 350. Far target is blue, and it's between 351 and 500. Awesome. So we're talking about brackets. In a, in a practical context, these brackets are in a zone that um, I like to shoot in. I like to think of shooting in because you can see things very well with your naked eye and you don't need super fancy optical devices to be able to see stuff. Now, all these targets are painted to be color-coordinated, and they're 12-inch diamonds. Is there a reason you picked – I'm a – I mean, you guys know I'm a fan of a diamond. The craft target's a diamond. Uh, is there a reason that you guys chose diamonds rather than squares or circles? Yeah. Um, so, originally, they were 12-inch by 12-inch squares, and the reason we chose that is because, one – it represents roughly the vital zone size on pretty much every North American big game animal, with the exception of maybe a coos deer. Um, and two, we wanted to make sure the target was generous enough that, you know, if it is a 500-yard shot, you wouldn't be forced into a level of precision that is typically only afforded by, you know, a higher-end, high-dollar custom rifle or high-end scope. We wanted people to bring out their granddad's 30 out six from the closet and be able to be competitive. And we thought that because of those two factors, 12 inch by 12 inch was pretty reasonable for the, what we're trying to accomplish with this sport. And the reason that they are hung as diamonds is because people that are colorblind 
um, might have trouble differentiating between, say, a neon green painted target and a red target placard. So we had people shooting placards instead of targets because they were roughly the same shape, um, roughly the same size, and pretty close to each other. So we hang the targets as diamonds because your placards are squares or rectangles and your targets are not diamonds. It's, it's a, a way to take the color differentiation between the placard and the target out of the equation and accommodate the surprisingly high percentage of the American male population that is at least somewhat colorblind, um, which we've learned after starting this sport. It's higher than I ever would have thought that it was. One in 12. Yeah, one in 12, apparently. Um, so, yeah, to, to represent roughly the kill zone size on North American big game animals to make it achievable and accessible to, you know, pretty much everyone in the country to be able to hit those targets. And then, you know, the tertiary reason and really the main reason for the diamonds is to um, accommodate people with colorblindness and to make a larger separation between the placards themselves and the actual targets. Gotcha. Yep. Man, we, we could talk about just that for hours because someone could say 12 inches is a big target at, at any of these distances. On the other hand, in a hunting context, the kill zone is a kill zone. And yep. in hunting context, these ranges are pretty common here in Colorado. Now, I'm, I'm going to just not entertain the concept of people hunting past 500 yards for, for the for the conversation here. I know people do it and people are effective at it, but yep. in general, um, 500 yards is a pretty long shot. Yep. You know, my familiarity with the terrain here in Colorado, you, there's a lot of terrain that has animals in it where you just, you just can't see 500 yards. So, so being able to, to get that kind of shot is not realistic with the vegetation, um, and, and, and stuff. And, and I'm sure there's statistics. Walt, you probably are more familiar with the average distance of deer and elk being taken in Colorado. Um, and my, my guess, I'm just going to make a wild guess is that it's, it's inside of 200 yards. Um, but maybe you have an actual data point. So I, I don't have hard numbers, but again, I mean, I'll harken back to my experience as a hunter, uh, all over much of the country and you know we're sort of blessed with this big open desert southwest area so we get we get pretty spoiled here in that we have opportunities at standing animals at four or five six seven hundred yards but if you were to take the the total number of hunters and all of the animals harvested in the last 50 years in this country i would venture to guess that that the number of them shot beyond 500 yards it's zero point and then several decimal points before you get to a one, the number of them that are shot past 500 yards as a percentage. And, and, you know, the sport is designed again with a low barrier of entry and, you know, using the common, the, the, the arms available to the common hunter at ethical common hunting distance. I'm not saying it's not ethical to shoot one farther than that. I'm just saying most people, number one, aren't capable of it. And number two, very, very, very seldom, given the entire country or the entire world, are shots taken that far. Mm -hmm. And the other point, yard, I would venture to guess, is a long shot for most all hunters as a percentage. Gotcha. The, the other point that I think is really important here is that 
by eye, you can see these targets because of their size and you don't need anything fancy to see them. And, and, and when, when it comes to seeing an elk at 500 yards, obviously it's, it's massive compared to the kill zone. Um, yep. And it's easy to forget the size of the animal versus the size of the space that you need to be able to put the round. Uh, somebody recently said that, um, I think Ryan Kleckner pointed out that a lot of shots are made towards the antlers because somebody's excited and they're looking at the antlers, looking at the antlers, looking at the antlers, and they change their point of aim and then they shoot off an antler. Um, yep. you know, I, I, <laughs> I can't imagine, uh, but, but you're looking at these big things, but you got to remember that the space that you need to put that round in is much smaller than, than uh, the size of the creature, uh, which is, which is, which is pretty cool. So um, let's get back to the format. The format is timed and blind. First of all, I love blind competitions in in any anything I do, and um, because it tests the well-roundedness of a shooter's systems and familiarity with what they may, may need to do in an unknown situation. The time. Can you run through the rationale between? Um, the scoring system and the time context that you chose for this? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you touched on something really important there is a shooter's familiarity with their gear and their system and how efficiently they can deploy things and what do I deploy when, um, you know, when do I deploy the bipod, when do I extend the legs all the way, when do I use a backpack as a shooting rest, when do I use a backpack as a rear rest and use, you know, that boulder in front of me as a front rest instead of my bipod. And, making all those things timed and blind and on the clock forces people to figure out their gear. I know that myself personally, I've changed a lot of, you know, the places that I stow my gear, um, figuring out how I can get to things more efficiently, figuring out what things I actually need to get to quickly and what things I can, you know, kind of put lower on my priority list because I don't end up using them very often. So it, it is good that it, really just by force teaches people to be better with what they have. Um, and then we've also found, you know, public land hunting in the West. A lot of times there will be some time element, whether it's your fault or not, um, in your hunting situation, whether, you know, you pop over a ridge and you've got elk at 300 yards and they've had you winded for the past 10 minutes, but they haven't busted out yet. You've got I don't know, 45 seconds to, you know, make a decision and try to make an ethical shot. And if you can't do it in that amount of time, then you miss that opportunity. Or let's say the animals don't know you're there, but they're kind of slowly grazing through a field. And that bull that you're looking to get is right at the edge of the trees. And you've got a brief amount of time before he just wanders off or another animal wanders in front of him. Or let's say there's another hunter on the ridge behind you and they're slamming their doors when they close or when they get out of the truck and all of a sudden, you know, the elk are spooked. So in hunting situations, we found a lot of times that there is a strong importance on getting things done efficiently. It's not to say that you always have to be going as fast as you possibly can when you're hunting, because that's just not the case, but being able to do it quicker and just as accurately and just as efficiently and ethically, I think is better than having to take all day to get it done. If I can do it just as accurately, faster, I think I'm better off for having that ability 
then if I have to rely on having all day and having a perfect situation and, you know, I've, I've got an hour to watch these animals. I mean, that's what we all want in a perfect world, but I hunt public land and that's not a perfect world. So we wanted to always harken back to the background of what we're approaching this from, and that's public land hunting. And, you know, like I said, it's not a perfect world. A lot of times you are going to have to push the time element a little bit while still maintaining your accuracy and the ability to make an ethical shot. And that's why we incorporated both the hit factor points per second scoring and the descending points as you miss your targets, because there's a penalty for misses. So it's, it's not just speed. It's how quickly can you get a first round hit? That's how you get the best score possible. I'd like to add something to that as well, that uh, it, it, every hunting situation has a time limit on it whether it's because the sun's going to go down or the animal's moving or something spooks it, you've got anywhere from three seconds to three hours to get an animal shot. All of them fall within that range for the most part, for example. The closer you are to being ready to make an accurate first-round vital zone hit in three seconds, the closer you are to being capable of harvesting every single animal you see. Everything falls on a timeline throughout the rest of that. Most hunting situations, you've only got a couple of minutes, which is a lot of time, honestly, but usually it's just a couple of minutes to get it done. Uh, so the person who can be ready quicker with a steady first shot hit is always going to be a more successful hunter. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna lead this into a question that that came up when Austin was talking. Um, it was it was kind of a more of an insight, but I'm gonna turn it into a question. Um, when it comes to efficiency with gear being faster, quicker, learning what, when, why, how, and, and, and how to do that stuff. I think that there's a tendency in a lot of competitive circles to, you know, get on social media, get on the internet and look for a piece of equipment that's going to make that change for them rather than have the shooter learn how to do that with what that they have. Now you guys have a laboratory. Um, I think of it as a laboratory because You've set it up as a competition. You don't have yep. to come to be competitive. You could come as someone that that wants to use it as a laboratory to grow. Now, it wouldn't cost a shooter very much to come every month or every week or however often that they could come to the course and run it. So let, let's say that they did it for, for three months. They came once a month, and they spent however much it cost to come once a month and try different things. My guess is you could probably name half a dozen or more people that have been coming to your ultimate hunter competitions that started off rough and have learned to use the equipment that they have and become very fast and very effective without buying anything except for more ammo. Right. Yeah. And so yep. instead of buying new gear, and better gear and lighter gear and faster gear and fancy specific stuff. They've just simply developed their skill through back casting their performance and then what they would need to change in between. Can you speak to that a little bit as a laboratory for training rather than just dumping money into something? Yeah, absolutely. And that what you mentioned there is exactly what we've seen. Um, I saw it personally with myself. I, I used to think I was a, pretty decent shot with a rifle and I learned more in the first eight months of shooting these competitions 
once a month than I had in my entire previous life. And that's, I've been an avid hunter since I was old enough to legally hunt big game in the West, you know, every year I've been out there and, you know, I don't like most public, public land hunters, you know, I, I focus on rifle shooting for a month or two out of the year when it's that time to do that. You know, most people, that's what they do. And then what this sport has exposed to me is where I can be better, um, how to improve with what I already had. And I started off shooting these matches with super basic gear, just like you're saying. And my skill level has increased exponentially in an extremely short time period. And we've seen that across, like, again, multiple different shooters of different backgrounds and different experience levels who have just done this repeatedly for three or four months even. Um, my buddy's wife, she's shot three matches and has jumped tremendously with extremely basic gear, and she is very new to shooting rifles. And it's been awesome to watch because I can watch her take the same progression and make the same improvements that I made Um and we've seen it over and over again. And the cool part is once you develop those skills, you have a better internalized test for what gear improvements at that point will really be worth it. Am I buying skill or am I buying gear? And if I've already got the skills, what gear will actually help me? Because I know what I can do. I know where my shortcomings are. Is this something I need to just purely practice more on? Or is this something where a different piece of gear or a different item will actually help me achieve that on top of more practice. So we've, we've seen people getting better just at shooting in general and using the system they already have and also at vetting the gear that they're considering buying. And I've done that for myself too, because I love buying new gear. I love fancy new toys. Um, but I've been considering certain things since we started, you know, certain things to buy certain pieces of gear since we started doing this. And over time, I've kind of come to realize that there aren't very many situations where that specific thing couldn't be accomplished through a different method or, you know, using something that I already have and achieve an equal result. Exactly. I think, uh, you know, Ryan Kleckner, we talk a lot, and he has this term that I like to always kind of bring up, he calls it acceptable accuracy. Yeah. And that's, if, if you need to hit a 12 inch plate, you can hit the 12 inch plate where you hit it on the 12 inch plate. Doesn't matter if your hit ratio is a hundred percent. Yep. If you're hitting that 12 inch plate all the time and you're faster, you're probably doing it better. Yep. Um, as long as you're hitting it right. You, you, you know, the, the conversation changes dramatically when you're missing. Um, but that entails knowing your shooting ability, knowing your equipment and also being fast and understanding the time frame and context. So that goes back to your scoring system. Can you explain your hit factor, the decision to make it a hit factor based competition and the points, why it's a decreasing points per hit and why that provides a sense of purpose that's really hard to simulate without it. Because I, I think it's awesome. Uh, but you guys made the decision to actually do it. Yeah, so, I mean, at the very beginning of this journey of creating these this new family of sports, we took stock of 
the existing sports out there, anything that was even remotely similar, looked at what they were doing, um, looked at what we wanted to do differently. Because don't get me wrong, we had considered just going out and gearing up to participate in the stuff that's already out there because that would be a lot easier than starting up, you know, five new sports out of nowhere. (laughs) Um, And it just really didn't fit what we were looking for. And you see a lot of, I I would say that from what I know of, most rifle matches are part-time based. So basically you harvest as many points as you can within that part-time and once you reach a certain level of competency, you look at your average part-time, and I shouldn't say competency, once you reach a certain skill level, you look at your average part-time, and you're comfortable in knowing that you can easily harvest the maximum number of points within that part-time as long as you do your part. And that kind of creates a disparity in skill level and the pressure that's applied um, to newer shooters versus more experienced shooters. And we wanted the pressure to be applied all the time. We wanted people to be forced to get more efficient with their gear always, no matter how good you are. So you can take someone who bought a rifle last week and has never shot competitively or really shot much at all, and the same time pressure, the same seconds tick away on that clock for them as they do for somebody who's been shooting competitively for 10 years and shooting rifles in general for 50 you know, the, the clock is the same for everyone and everyone is under the same time pressure to be more efficient, to get those first round hits quicker and to get stable enough to get those first round hits quicker. Um, and speaking to the decreasing points, like you were saying, we didn't want it to be just, you know, a, a pure speed thing where as long as you hit the target, you get your points because then you'd end up with, you know, someone with, let's say an AR platform, just winging shots as quick as they could because they know that they had a somewhat good rest. And if I can, you know, shoot three times in four seconds or four times in three seconds and get lucky on a hit on that far target, I will get a better score because I'm not losing anything by dumping those rounds at that target versus someone who takes five seconds to get a first round hit. Um, In my eyes, the person that takes a few seconds more to get that first round hit is doing a better job than someone who is getting a somewhat compromised position and kind of just throwing shots until they get lucky using that whole uh, accuracy by volume concept. Um, So there's a penalty for missing. You can't just be fast and you can't just be slow and accurate. It has to be a balance of both. You have to find a good position quickly. You have to use your gear efficiently and you have to do it well enough to meet that standard of hitting that 12 inch by 12 inch diamond out to 500 yards. So we were trying to kind of, um, hit that magical trifecta that Walt had mentioned, I think before we started of speed, accuracy, and a, you know, a, a good, good field position. It, it's yeah. worth noting too, that on the other, the other end of the competency spectrum, you know, we are after all in the entertainment business and far and away, the biggest demographic that you're going to cater to are people that don't have a lot of experience and aren't at the, at the pinnacle of the shooting sports, the meat of your, of, of your participation is going to come from people that are mid to moderate shooters. And especially even for the beginning shooters, if you have a target that descends in value all the way down to zero, it's, it's not only theoretically possible, but in many cases, highly likely that they're going to get zero points for a stage and even multiple stages. So yeah. that's why we have the targets descend at, at a painful rate of 
half of their value for every miss all the way down to but never below 10 and since you have to hit to progress there's almost no chance that even a very beginning beginner won't at least hit the 100 yard target and get some points for every stage they're going to have a score that's above a zero on every stage and that's critically important too because you don't have a rifle sport if you don't have a place to begin and the bulk of your people are going to be in that in that low to mid-range level yeah yeah that's one thing i love about the guardians is that they make sure that everybody hits targets and has a good time and yeah and kind of they decoupled the the prize factor from the shooting experience and they say look if, if somebody's new or this is their first competition you can coach them you can you know they need to get a hit and and those people are happy and uh and and they have a they have a good time so there's uh, a couple things that stand out and i think it it um you know i told you that gosh i from a from a competitive mindset don't don't think they matter at all and and when when we put out the video showing us running the stages and we have video footage from from stages at cameo too uh, you could see why um, tripods and rests can hinder you from performing but but why did you choose to remove tripods and rests from or or um, shooting bags uh, from from the rules so speaking for me personally there are a couple of reasons for that um, one, there are already multiple sports that accommodate both of those tools that are very popular and a lot of people use them and a lot of people do it. Um, so I didn't feel bad about disallowing those from the rules because if, if your participation in the sport is incumbent upon being able to use tripods or a bag, um, then, you know, there's already something out there for you Two, We were throughout the whole process of developing these sports, we were trying to think of every part of the country, every possible terrain scenario, every possible match director decision. And let's say that you've got a match director somewhere, whether it's because of the terrain they're limited to or not, who sets up stages where the shooting area is, you know, a 10 yard circle of just flat dirt. And you've got targets in elevated positions and targets where you have to stand up and shoot 250 yards over the top of a bush um, to be able to get to it. You know, you can't prone out. Um, really, the only way you would be able to be effective and hit those targets would be to have an elevated shooting position or platform like a tripod, which would essentially turn it into a gear race because if you didn't have that tool for that specific scenario, you would really be severely disadvantaged. And we wanted to avoid the possibility of that happening to where even if a match director does decide to design stages in that manner or a similar manner, um, you won't be disadvantaged by not having a piece of gear that someone else does happen to have on that day. So we wanted to remove the gear race aspect of it, the fact that there are already other sports that accommodate those things. And really, I just want to test people's skills when those tools are removed from the equation. You know, they are extremely effective tools. You can find videos all over the place of people hitting MOA or smaller targets on a tripod just by touching the trigger, which is awesome. I, I love that ability is out there, and I love that people utilize that. But it takes a lot of the shooter out of the equation, and I want to see what people can do 
like I said, when, when those tools aren't allowed, um, something Walt spoke to before, and I'm, he's grabbing a phone charger right now, so I'll try and kind of paraphrase for him. I'm sure he'll clarify when he comes back in, is that when you're hunting public land, which, again, we're, we don't encompass the totality of people's experiences hunting public land, but we've hunted a lot of places over a long, long cumulative number of years, as have the people that we've talked to in the development of these sports. And using tripods to shoot off of is definitely more common than it ever has been, but it's still not something that you see a high percentage of the average Joe doing in the field. The majority of tripods that I see being used in, in the field are, you know, being used to hold a spotting scope and glass, you know, miles and miles of land at a time. And you just don't see it as much. So I wouldn't say that it's necessarily common use. And I know I'm going to make a lot of people upset, upset by saying that because them and all their buddies use that specific piece of gear. But that's also a factor that we took into account during this process. And again, this isn't to say that the way that we're doing things is the only way to hunt or the right way to hunt or the ethical way to hunt or that no one else does things in a way that we disallow or don't necessarily cater to. This is just the way that we could cast the broadest net possible to try and catch the most fish and, you know, get people out there and testing their gear and learning and becoming better shooters with what they already have. So that yeah. was kind of a long winded <laughs> explanation there, but it's, no, it's a, num- it. a number of reasons for it. And I, I can get ahead of all that and just say, personally, man, I, I push tripods like crazy. Like there's not, I mean, I shoot on tripods all the time because I They're think awesome. that developing that standing, kneeling, seeing prone supported, it, it provides you with a really cool training tool. If you have good fundamentals, you, you know, you're essentially training your fundamentals at, at different heights. You're not necessarily, I don't think of it as a tripod. I think of it as I have a specific height. So it could be a branch. It could be, the bed of a truck it could be your buddy's shoulder um yep. but at the end of the day uh this you're not hunting right <laughs> we're we're you're out there training your skill sets and if you have good fundamental skill sets and then you have something that provides you with a rest like a tripod you'll be effective but if you train only for the tripod and then take it away you'll be less effective at at solving those problems and then I'm I'm probably like, you know, your biggest outside of your area supporter of of this competition just because of how much fun it was. Um and thinking as a competitor, if you said, you know what, Chris, you can have a tripod and shooting bags, there's no way possible that I would get the score, my highest score, if I was gonna use those things. So that, that immediately changed the scenario. Like having done a couple and run through it and Wargame did a little bit, um, on a competitive standpoint, if you try to use a tripod and a shooting bag, it's going to slow you down because you're shooting to 500 yards and you're doing other things that it's testing you on. Once you have good fundamentals and you have the capability of shooting, you know, to them away, you need to measure stress, speed, decision-making, position, yep. you know, uh, site selection, um, you know, all of those, the ability to, because you're trying to go so fast, 
like stay on target. And I know that sounds kind of funny with a bullgun thing because people are like, well, I have one tenth wobble or zero wobble. We're used to like wobble. It's almost nothing. But I, yep. I, I felt back. Sometimes I tease um, one of the ranges that I train at is a LE range. And, um, you know, when they leave after their quals, you know, they're standing at five, seven yards and they filled up the 20 inch, uh, you know, <laughs> more than man sized target shooting their pistols. And it's like, man, yeah. that, it's very easy under stress and speed and time to have a lot of wobble, right? I, I just, I, I figured that that's just a wobble example, right? I mean, if, if, yep. if it's seven yards, you know, you're hitting a, you're filling in a, a sheet of plywood. Um, that, that's an interesting stressor. And uh, I don't, I just, yeah, I think when it, when it comes to hits for time, in the competitive context of what you guys are providing a tripod and a shooting bag, they won't be competitive. So, so I think it just kind of eliminates itself and, and it's still hard to hit a 12 inch circle when you're trying to go very fast. And I think very fast, um, you know, not, not to set guidelines, but, but people are probably asking, well, what is, you know, the part times I, we ran, I'll, I'll kind of give a, a cliff notes. When I ran through it, my first stage times were about two minutes. Yeah, and I would run up and I would range each target, and then I would build a position, and then I would gauge one, dial, engage one, dial, engage one. It was taking me about two minutes, something like that. And yeah. and by the end of the day, we were doing like forty seconds or something like that. Yep. I thought so. I took um, a guy that I coach, and we made a video with, and he's a very accomplished competitor now, and he did the same thing. We timed him, and he was two two minutes and thirty seconds, got through the stage doing it like that. And then by the end, it was like 43 seconds and he wasn't using, I mean, he, he, he definitely was following uh, the rules the way that they were intended. But, but the point was your mindset changes, you realize the context and the acceptable accuracy for this particular game. And then what that does is it decouples a little bit of, of the obsession with, um, whiz bang stuff yep. to more practical context. And that practical context I think is really important because rifles and handguns, all firearms have practical applications that some of the games that we play don't necessarily fall into either on both sides of the spectrum. Some are way too fast and some are way too slow. And, yep. and, um, and this does a really good job kind of hitting the mark right in the middle. So, um, is there, we, we address why targets are the size that they are. We address the, the, the tripod and rest stuff. Um, I was joking just because I like to think about, okay, how would I be the most competitive? And you, you brought up gas guns. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I think, I haven't, I haven't run it with a gas gun, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure uh, that I would be faster if I brought a carbine uh, and ran through it, having gone through it before. Uh, but why, why do you have caliber left and right limits? So the first reason for having caliber limits is because we're shooting targets as close as a hundred yards. And a lot of the rounds that people hunt with out there will just straight up blow through half inch AR 500. Um, and people will argue that up and down, but our steel suppliers told us multiple times, like you don't want to shoot these calibers over this velocity, regardless of bullet weight at my steel and it is half inch AR 500. So that's, that's the main reason for us putting a velocity limit on there. And then we also added 
a um, an approved caliber list just because we wanted to avoid having to chronograph everyone's rounds at every match in order to ensure that nobody's pushing that speed limit in order to gain an advantage on those farther targets and not have to hold over much at all. Because honestly, if you're shooting a hot 22, 250, um, you're not going to have to hold more than the top corner of that plate for pretty much any target out there. And, you know, I'm, I'm not against someone using their velocity as an advantage, but we got to save, save our steel out there. Um, so that's the main reason. And then on top of that, um, well, what I was getting to is to avoid having to chrono. That's why we went to the approved caliber list, the approved, the approved cartridge list is, you know, there are a lot of cartridges that will just in their standard loading exceed that velocity limit, um, across the board. So we, um, we broke up our divisions into two different caliber ranges, 243 and six millimeter and below is varmint and anything larger than that is big game. And that's just because, you know, a lot of those varmint cartridges do shoot faster and flatter and have lower recoil. Um, and we wanted to level the playing field as much as we could within those two, you know, caliber ranges, uh, so to speak. And, you know, we get a lot of people asking, well, why isn't my cartridge on there? Well, there are how many on there now? It's a, it's a big list. It, I would say that it encompasses, if you were to say all hunters shoot, hunting big game environments in this country on an annual basis, it covers 99 plus percent of them. And what few it doesn't cover, those people probably also have a gun that is in, that is on the list, even if the one they want to use might not be. It It's it's pretty comprehensive. Okay. Now I'm going to pull out a wild card here. You guys are going to, you're going to be like, what? (laughs) You guys know how to shoot pistols. Yeah. I saw one once (laughs) a little bit. I love telling bolt gunners, carbine shooters, they should go to the range and see what they can learn from a pistol that could be applied back to their rifle systems. Yep. And I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not going to go to USPSA, but I, I could shoot a pistol. I can, you know, not, not at a USPSA level, but, but I, I'm, I'm good with a pistol and I shoot pistols a lot. And I feel like a lot of the insights that I get from my own shooting personally come from days where I go out and I let the pistol teach me something. And then yep. I go, man, I need to do this with a rifle now. Yeah. What are some things that you think the pistol people often overlook about pistol shooting that could be carried back? Not, not, not to say, I don't want this to be like, you know, the best shooters shoot pistols. I want it to be, what is the pistol taught you and how do you always fall back to pistol or do you? when you go to a rifle and if you haven't been shooting um one or the other do you do you notice it affects i mean i guess you guys shoot pistol every day so uh that's hard to say but but if i don't shoot pistol for a while and i shoot my rifle and then i shoot pistol and then i shoot rifle i realize wow the pistol just caught me up to speed a little bit faster but but because you guys have accomplished so much in pistol shooting um, I really just wanted some insight from you guys about pistol shooting and what a rifle shooter could learn from going out 
not to a competition, but just from a range day, you know, shooting paper and, and, and how they might incorporate that to their rifle training. Yeah. So on, on pistols, everything is amplified, you know, at a much higher magnitude, every input, because your sight radius is so much shorter, every input has a much bigger effect on where your shot goes. Um, you, the different grip pressures you apply to the grip of the pistol have a much bigger effect. Um, flinching on the trigger has a bigger effect. And, you know, it's, you have a much smaller lever and you're making much more direct input between your action and the result on target. So everything is amplified in that, uh, in that manner. And then kind of to touch on the competitive aspect of it, um, maintaining good execution of solid fundamentals under stress and with that time pressure. And as you're trying to go as fast as you possibly can, is definitely a component of that, that continuously helps me across all platforms when I'm shooting. Um, shot anticipation is certainly one of them because, you know, with a rifle, you know that it's going to recoil, you know, it's going to make a lot of noise and it's probably going to thump your shoulder a little bit. You might get scope bite if you're, you know, in the position to allow that to happen, you might get unlucky, but holding onto a pistol, you're controlling an exploding machine in your hand every time that shot goes off and overcoming your brain's natural tendency to flinch and squeeze and anticipate that shot and, you know, perform all these very natural reactions to something that you're doing that are directly against good shooting fundamentals and teaching your brain to be okay with that and to execute the good fundamentals anyways definitely carries over as well. Um, those, those are probably the biggest, the biggest things that I notice personally um, in how pistol shooting helps me in every other type of shooting that I do, whether it's archery or shotgun or rifles um, another one that I've noticed specifically since starting to do the, the ultimate hunter competitions has been how to pull the trigger quickly without imparting motion into the platform. Um, yep. because there are a lot of situations where, because we're on the clock and because I know what acceptable accuracy is, if I have, you know, a somewhat unsteady rest, but I know that it's workable as long as I don't jerk the trigger, or I, I should say as long as I don't move the rifle more than it's already moving relative to my rest. When I pull the trigger, I'm confident that I'll get the hit. So that's one, that's one of the bigger carryovers is pulling the trigger quickly without moving the platform. I, I think Austin touched on it, the mental aspect of it for me. You know, of course, there are the physicalities. You need to be able to pull the trigger without moving the gun. And and with handguns, the sight radius, the margin for error is so much smaller that you absolutely cannot move the gun at all when you pull the trigger. But then you're doing it while you're in the middle of a 100-yard dash against Usain Bolt. So your goal is to get through this course of fire as fast as you possibly can without missing anything. And so you ha there has to be an ability that you develop over time, and it is just trigger time, where you get better and better at having half of your brain going Mach 9 while that part of your body vis-a-vis -vis your trigger finger and some part of your brain lining up the shot and staying calm like a Zen moment on every single one of those trigger splits 
that carries over for me into rifle shooting very, very prominently. And, and I think, I think the mental aspect of it, of being a competitive pistol shooter is, is the biggest benefit. Yeah. Gotcha. One of the things I don't know, I don't know kind of where it came from or, or why it circulated, but the idea of, you know, when I shoot most of the time, my sight picture stays on the target no matter what. So even though there's a recoil impulse, it's straight back, but with a pistol, I noticed that my, you, you can't keep a pistol from recoiling. I, or at least, you know, I can't. A lot of people want to fight. Austin And, and, um, so that concept of sight picture changes, but if you're, if you're gripping it or holding it in your position, that's just right. If you just let the pistol do what it's going to do, it naturally goes back onto the target. Is there something that you guys do to, to practice that? Yeah. So that's, that's a really great point that you make there. And you see different levels of that at even the top tier pinnacle level of competition shooting, you know, in a perfect world, I would have good enough recoil control that the slide would reciprocate directly back towards my dominant eye and then reciprocate directly back forward without my sight picture ever changing or moving from where it is on the target. Um, but unless you're shooting a 22, that's a pretty unrealistic expectation. You want to get as close as you can to that. But then on the other hand, you see people who have won world championships. Um, the one that, you know, first comes to mind is Elias Frangoulis. Um, he, doesn't have great recoil mitigation, but he returns to target so consistently. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of muzzle flip when he shoots, but his, his gun goes exactly back to where his sights were. Um, like I said, it's extremely consistent and his timing is so precise that he doesn't lose any time in spite of his, you know, lower level of recoil mitigation relative to his peer competitors that it doesn't give him any disadvantage because by the time the gun has gone through its recoil impulse and cycled, he's back on target pretty much at the same rate as everyone else who has much better recoil mitigation. So even though he has more muzzle flip, his gun is returning back to the exact same point with his sights exactly on the target where he wanted them to be and where they started from the, from at the beginning of that shot. So he returning back to the correct point, I think carries over as well, because there are a lot of times where I'll be in a position on a rifle that is compromised, but steady. And I say compromised because I know that when the shot goes off, I'm probably not going to stay in the same position because it might be a shooting area where that's just not possible to build a rest on in a way that would provide me a competitive time. So I'm steady enough. I know to make the shot, but I'm probably going to move off target. As long as I can resettle back to where I was at the beginning of that shot. And as long as the shot is farther than say 250 yards, I'll probably resettle back in time to see where my hit was. If I did miss most of my shots, even the ones with somewhat compromised positions, I know I hit before I have any auditory response because I can see the target swinging in my scope when I recover from recoil. Yeah, I think that's important because there's a lot of discussion in the rifle world about seeing your impacts. And I think that there's so many different factors that play a role in that. But a lot of the inputs that shooters put into the system amplify 
not only point of impact errors, but also that recovery error. And you can, you can see that with a pistol and trying to, <laughs> it, I have the tendency to want to force that stupid pistol to stay versus just let it do its thing. Yep. It, and, uh, you know, that, that connection hasn't necessarily, I mean, I'm aware of it. I just can't quite, you know, I want it. I'm like, God damn, like, dude, get back on dark. You know, but like, but, but, but when I, once I've kind of clicked and, and doing that effectively, I'm like, wow, this is so much easier. And I'm literally faster, smoother, and more accurate. But, 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 but I still come back like, you know, a couple of days later and dang it, I want to keep it right where I mean, like the whole time, don't, don't move. And, uh, and I go, Oh, wait a minute. I, I, it can do what it wants to, as long as it goes back to where I need it to be. And, uh, but, but that's not, a, that's not easy, right? Because you're <laughs> squeezing it, your other hand's squeezing it, and you got a finger yeah. on the trigger and, and, uh, you got the all better the different strong, The quicker it gets back to where it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one of those things that I was talking about is amplified with a pistol because, you know, it carries over, like you were saying, directly to rifles. You want to be able to see your impact, and you want to return back to where you were at the end of that recoil impulse, and it's a lot more noticeable with pistols because, again, you're you're holding onto this little exploding machine that's going to react relatively violently in your hands, and you're trying to control that while also not adding additional inputs that ends up making things worse, exactly like you were just saying. So the one of the fundamentals that I don't I don't know if 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 you guys would define fundamentals of marksmanship any different, but you know the the ninety degree trigger press or or trigger press. But a lot of times in rifle shooting, um, or it's not uncommon to hear people encourage shooters to to hold the trigger to the rear as follow through, mm-hmm. and then let it go. But with good pistol shooters. I, I don't know. This is more of a question. Rather than holding it to the rear, do you go to a reset? Um, so, yeah, um, that's that's entirely dependent on your target difficulty and how quickly you're trying to shoot. So if I'm if I'm shooting, you know, 0.12 second splits on a target five yards away, where I I can not aim very much and I can shoot really fast and no, I'm slapping that trigger as fast as I can because I know my grip is good enough and I can watch my sights and get feedback from my sights, you know, before, during, and after the recoil impulse that tells me, I know I can make those hits. Whereas if I'm shooting an eight inch steel plate at 35 yards with my pistol, then I am feeling every process in that trigger. So, you know, touching the trigger, take up to the trigger wall, breaking the trigger, resetting to that trigger wall again and then you know feeling the whole process all the way through from the reset again um it it purely depends on the shot and what you're trying to do up close and fast i'm slapping that trigger no shame (laughs) um but as my targets get more difficult i'm i'm going to be a lot more careful with the trigger and and at real distance once follow through actually becomes important to where you will briefly hold it all the way back because that's your assurance that you had good trigger press Yep. Yeah, when you're trying to call the shot for those farther, farther, and honestly, we don't do much in competition, but, um, you know, when we practice, a lot of times we'll have a 100-yard 12 by 12 plate set up there, and, you know, just as a, a test and kind of a, a baseline measurement, we'll shoot that, 
And for those ones, you want to feel every bit of the trigger and you want to pull all the way through and hold it at the rear, even if it's just for a split second, just because like Walt was saying, that's, that's your reassurance that, okay, I felt like I hit that. And then you get the feedback of yes or no, I didn't hit that. And you can adjust for the next shot. And in ultimate hunter, because we do have targets as close as a hundred yards, a lot of times I'll either shoot offhand and you know, I, if, if there's a 12 inch by 12 inch steel plate at hundred yards, I can kind of pick when in my natural bounce shooting offhand, I want to pull the trigger. And as long as I don't move the platform, when I pull the trigger, I can pull it quickly and not apply all those, you know, good fundamentals of a proper trigger press and hit the target. Or let's say it's a situation where I can quickly drop to a knee or grab a boulder or something like that and get a good rest for that hundred yard target. Again, in that situation, I'm slapping the trigger. Um, just because I know that I can achieve that acceptable level of accuracy for what I'm trying to accomplish in that situation. And I can do it quicker, but, you know, I can save half a second by slapping the trigger instead of taking my slow, steady trigger press through there where I'm feeling every part of the trigger pull process. Um, and then, you know, 20 seconds later, I'm engaging the same size target at 500 yards off the top of a boulder. That's a little bit you know, rounded. So I'm having to be really careful and really steady. And in that situation, you know, 30 seconds apart, I'm having to apply two very different tactics on my trigger press to try and get the most, to get the best competitive result. So we see both ends of the spectrum in pistol shooting and in, in ultimate hunter on the near, there's a way I heard the put one time. I don't remember who said it, but for near shots, you can command the gun to fire for far shots. You have to wish the gun into firing. Like and that. I, that's that's all about isolating what level of of motion inducement you're up, you you could you could satisfy yourself with or settle for and still get hits. Gotcha, gotcha. Sick. Well, I appreciate it, guys. I think we covered it uh, pretty well. Are there any things that we didn't cover, like how people could look you up? and get information about the ultimate hunter yeah so ultimate-hunter.com has all of our rule sets for all five different sports and we're not just a centerfire one like we were telling you this morning with literally earlier today we were out there at the range shooting a rimfire version of this match um which is a hoot oh it's a ton of fun it's like hunting squirrels when i was 12 it's a ton of fun so we've got the centerfire version that we've been talking about we've got an archery version we've got you know, rim fire. Um, we have a rule set for muzzle loader and handgun. So really any type of hunting that people do across the country in mass, we've developed a sport and a rule set that follows the same ethos and the same format to the greatest extent possible. Um, so really you can, you can play with whatever you hunt with, um, unless you're out there with an atlatl, then I, I don't have much for you. Atlatl is <laughs> um, but yeah, ultimate-hunter.com, and there are a couple instructional videos that, you know, I'm on camera walking through, pointing out what the target indicators are, the order of engagement, your shooting area, and then actually doing it live. And we've got that for both the centerfire rifle and the archery version. So we're all about lowering the barrier of entry, so we want to make it easy for people to hop on there, read the rules, um, watch an instructional video that takes 12 minutes and then be able to confidently take what you've got from, you know, last season's hunting trip and go out to the range and be comfortable in doing this for the first time. And 
if there are any clubs around the country or groups around the country that would be interested in setting this up, I've actually been doing a thing where I'll take time off my day job and I'll travel out there and help them set up and run their first match. We can even bring targets if they don't have Yeah, we can bring targets out to them. So we're really trying to be as accommodating as we possibly can in growing this and getting it going in multiple places. We've started a club in Northwest Arkansas. We've started a club in St. George, Utah. Um, so we're, we're trying to we're trying to grow this and reach as many people as we can. We're again we're trying to cast a broad map of it. Awesome. Yeah, Frank and I are going to do a couple zones for we've been experimenting and playing with air guns and and rim fires. We're going to set some up at the at the range here in Fort Morgan. You know, two or three of those stages interspersed with different variants of of other field matches, but definitely going to incorporate your design into being able to show people if you want to do this, go do it because it's freaking fun. I mean, it's just straight up fun and it's super practical. And I think it teaches you a lot about your rifle, your ballistics, and then your willingness to do something different than the discipline that you may have trained yourself into a pigeonhole getting really good at and realizing, wow, this pigeonhole doesn't work in a lot of other scenarios, whereas yours does. Um, which I think is pretty cool uh, because speed really does, really does matter. Speed and accuracy um, with locate, judge the range um, and all those factors. You bring up an interesting thing, locate. So it, it wasn't really mentioned before, but we try to make it as easy as possible for the competitor to find the target as quickly as possible. And that's why we have the indicators pointed directly at the color-coded placard right next to the target. We don't want this to be a who can find a piece of steel the best contest. We want it to be uh, the contest where it's presumed that the animal has already been located. How quickly can you make use of the, the, the geology and geography and topography that you're given in the allowed area to make an accurate hit? That's the contest. Yeah, yeah. And and you do it very well in a way that I think looks professional and efficient with with colored rebar pointing sticks, whatever you would call them, <laughs> that match the colors of the targets. I, I think it's really effective. And w w although I feel like, you know, that aspect we touched on, if, if you're shooting a deer at 150 yards, you're not looking for a 12 inch diamond, you're looking for a deer which yep. is much bigger. So the chances of you having seen it are pretty good. So you're right. It's not a target finding competition. You can find them very, very quickly, but it's still interesting that you see these targets by eye and people are inclined to pull out their binoculars and set up a thing and arrange them and, and do a lot of things that in certain ranges, that might not be the most efficient way to get through it, but you have to teach yourself through success. Yep. There are other ways you know, if it's 100 to 200 yards, ballistically, you're talking about a zero to a 0.5 mil difference in most of our ballistic, you know, 0.5, that we're talking about an inch um, yeah. or an inch and a half. So at 200 yards, that would be two inches on a 12-inch plate. Yeah. Knowing exactly the yard line is probably not going to make as much of a difference. And if you're that close, there's higher likelihood they're going to smell you, you're going to make some noise, 
something else is going to happen. And yeah. I think that learning those lessons through hits and miss and speed um, reinforce where you make that mental switch, but you can't tell somebody, Hey, you're going to make this mental switch when you run into the scenario. <laughs> if you make yeah. somebody, but you make somebody do it. And the next time they will make that mental switch, right? Yeah. You kind of, you have to do it. You can't just say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to coach you before you go. Good luck. Um, yeah. You, you have to kind of get through it once, see what, what happened, think about it and go, okay, now I know what the experience feels like. Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on a good point there. A couple of good points. I never range the red target. I don't never range the close target because like you said, I know that as long as I don't really, really screw up my position, even if it's offhand, I can just hold dead on that plate. And even for the white target, the intermediate range, if I hold top corner of that plate, there's a good chance that even if it's at 350, I'm going to hit that plate. And again, when you said just building that instinct of, I can go faster because it's easier to hit my target when I'm closer. And there's also a better chance of me being detected when I'm closer. I think is a really good point to make as well. But those are all things that you have to learn from going and trying it and seeing how fun it is, how cool it is and then being willing to go back and do it again and say, wow, yeah. I got a lot better. Um, not we, expecting we, to go crush. Yeah. Our, our best, our best lessons come from failing because we are, far more determined to improve on what we just did if if we fail at it than we are to try and improve on something if we hit it. I mean, yeah, the, you learn the lesson quicker when it hurts. <laughs> yeah, but this competition, I think, is one of those rare examples of if you took an effective hunter out of the field having, having never competed, they would probably initially do better at this than a high-end specific competitor from another discipline because they've trained themselves out of doing the things that are required. So their very first experience, I think it would be reversed. I think that, you know, then second time through, then it's probably game on. But yeah, our experience no taking a class through that, I think all the, all the experienced hunters that never competed were very effective right off the bat. And the yep. competitors were slow, including myself. We trained ourselves into behaving in a way that was unique to a discipline that this wasn't. And that yep. hurt us in the long run and immediately identified, oh crap, I can do this differently. But I think going with the expectation of, oh, I want a NRL hunter, or I want a PRS match. I don't think that's gonna be a great mindset coming to this. Um, Whereas, uh, but, but the willingness to come learn and then come back and reapply what you learned, it, it, there's high value. And, and again, it's just freaking fun. And, and your buddy, you know, if you shoot the stage and then you can hang out and watch your buddy shoot the stage and then you can laugh about it and talk about, you know, how you do it different and, and, and really learn quickly about field shooting. And Colorado, and Cameo is just a great facility to learn about natural positions and- Oh, yeah you know, lots of directions of fire and you guys move the course. It's not just a fixed course. That's always going to be just that. Right. So you guys, how often do you rotate stages? Pretty much every month in between local matches. Um, we'll do a full course redesign probably every three or four months, but typically in between local matches, we'll go move one or two targets on a stage and then change up the shooting positions. But keep the, you know, the, the routes in and out of the stage roughly the same. So 
we can, you know, wrap a piece of rope around a juniper one month and then move 10 yards to the right of that and go around a little boulder field the next month. And your stage has completely changed um, because the shooting challenge has changed. Um, and we might move a target on top of that, but by making small changes periodically, one, I don't have to go out there after work and rebuild the entire thing every time. And two, we can keep things familiar, but maintain a new challenge every single time. And that's what we're looking to do. Small changes, less work, but you're, you're getting the same, a new game every time, a new puzzle every single time. I think 90% of the quality of the experience has to do with the shooting position itself. Uh, a 12 inch diamond is a 12 inch diamond is a 12 inch diamond. All we're doing is changing. The, even if we change the position of them, it, it, all we've done really is change the distance. The, the size and the shape of the thing is still exactly the same. And again, hearkening back to its value as a hunting tool, you know, uh, it, 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 you should be able to hit that. It should be a meatball. Why on earth would you be pulling the trigger on an animal that you weren't 100% confident you could hit, right? So the, the, the marksmanship challenge should, should, only be, should only be throttled up or down by the difficulty of the position that we give you to work from. And, and then to solve the problem is your ability to, to get stable and how much time you take to get a steady shot.